You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists. And for almost the last 12 years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, UFC 298 over the weekend from the Honda Center, Anaheim, California. A sea change, I guess you might say, at men's featherweight Ilya Topuria defeats longtime champion Alexander Volkanovsky second round KO. The torch, I guess you could say, is passed, or at least that is the way the MMA community at large seems to be taking this victory. In the co-main event, Robert Whitaker defeated Paulo Costa via unanimous decision, their middleweight fight. Ian Machado, Gary, Marab Dwalishvili, and Anthony Hernandez also picking up important wins on the main card. So obviously we're going to spend most of this show talking about UFC 298. We got a ton of listener mail. We're going to try to go through as much of that as we can over the next hour plus. And uh, we're going to take on as many of these UFC 298 issues as we can. I guess before we get started with that, though, Ben, did you know that the presidential election of 1800 between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson was one of only two elections that resulted in the House of Representatives deciding who would be president of the United States. It was also the only time that there was a tie for president in the Electoral College. And although it wasn't a tie, the House of Representatives also had to decide the president in the election of 1824 between Adams's son, John Quincy Adams, and Andrew Jackson, when no candidate reached the required majority of electoral votes. What do you think about that? You know, I know everyone really enjoys the President's Day episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast just because of how much enjoyment you get out of sharing with us the series of presidential facts. Uh, I decided this year that I would get in on the fun. And so I also have a presidential fact that I would like to share with you. We're we're calling an audible here. You know, before you start. And I don't know which way, which direction you're going to go with this. I have a feeling it's going to be, maybe it's not going to be done in good faith. All right. That's just the what? feeling that I have. How but dare you, sir? The President's Day episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is one of the highlights of the year. It's one of the dates on the calendar that all the little co-maniacs circle. They want to hear the presidential trivia. I'm glad that you're getting in on the action. What is your presidential fact today? Chad, did you know that John Fitzgerald Kennedy was assassinated on November 22nd, 1963? Did you also know that the man blamed for this assassination and claimed to have acted alone in killing President Kennedy was Lee Harvey Oswald, who, Chad, you might be interested to know, had traveled to Mexico City on September 27th of that year, where he visited the Cuban consulate and the Soviet embassy. In Mexico City, someone also was later found to have impersonated Oswald in calls to the Soviet embassy. 
The CIA station in Mexico City was aware of this, asked CIA headquarters for information on Oswald, only to be told that there was none. Hmm. Which, Chad, was certainly untrue because Oswald had defected to the Soviet Union uh, in the late 50s and then returned back to the United States in 1961. The CIA, uh, as, as we later learned Uh, After the creation of the Civilian Assassination Records Review Board uh, to oversee all of this, Oswald had been under close observation by the CIA. They had been reading his mail ever since he had come back from the Soviet Union. And the CIA station chief in Mexico City uh, later participated in a cover-up that was revealed as part of this assassination records review. This is from Frontline. Quote, after President Kennedy's assassination, documents show that the agency created two more false stories in connection with Oswald's Mexico City visit. The first cover story was that the CIA's tapes of the phone calls had been erased before the assassination. The second cover story was that the CIA did not realize Oswald had visited the Cuban consulate until they looked into the matter after the assassination. These were later determined to be lies. Thank you, Joe Rogan. Don't worry, we'll we'll hear more about this later in the show. You know what the key to a good, punchy presidential fact trivia is? Brevity. Okay, you want you want brevity? No, not right you now. Brevity? You already you Chad. You already where was used... E. Howard E. Howard Hunt <laughs> on November twenty second, nineteen sixty three? He was not, in fact, in Washington D.C. having dinner with his wife, as he claimed. Chad, he was as was later revealed in CIA memos in Dallas, Texas. Is that okay. punchy enough for you? No, nah, I mean, I don't even know if the listeners to this show know. We've talked about it behind the Patreon paywall. I don't know if listeners of this show know that 2024 is the year that you have fully transitioned into boomer status, getting obsessed with the JFK assassination I don't know, building ships in bottles over there. And you got you probably have one of those little work benches with the goggles and the tweezers. So you're sitting there tying flies that you're really gonna make your caddis flies pop this year when you get out on the river. You just you've you've turned into an old old man. I'm I'm disappointed to hear you say that. I'm more disappointed though that on this day, on President's Day, mm-hmm. you don't feel more of frankly a duty to yeah. get to the bottom of this i feel like you're hijacking the, the day here like you're hijacking this, the holiday on this day of all days i feel like you have a responsibility to look into it <laughs> <laughs> see that's the thing people have looked into it yeah it's they been, have and the evidence is looked into overwhelming chad yeah frankly we all, overwhelming we already know literally no one is sitting out here being like leah harvey oswald was the only shooter like we know we've spent a half a century figuring it out. We know. It's- oh, so now cool kid Chad Dundas knew about your assassination <laughs> theory before it was even cool. Hey, you want to talk about presidential assassinations, kid? We will later in the show. Remember, though, you're listening to Damn the Coleman right event podcast proper. This show drops every Monday afternoon for free in your timelines and podcast libraries. But if you want to hear more, and at this point, I can't imagine that that's true, but you can go <laughs> over to uh, the, the Patreon page, patreon.com slash co-main event. Ben Folks and I are over there all week. Hit us up, patreon.com slash co-main event. It's not all JFK assassination 
trivia over there. We have three handy levels of patronage. You can jump in whenever you want and join the show over there. It's fun. We love it. Everybody has a good time. Another way you could support the show is by going to cobainevent.com and clicking the link at the top of the page that says shop. That will get you into our new merchandise shop. You can buy all kinds of cool merch over there, including the bestseller right now, the daddest man on the planet coffee mug. Another thing you could get to celebrate his big win at UFC 298 would be the Bobby Knuckles t-shirt. Mm-hmm. Get down with Robert Whitaker. He's back on the winning track. The original Bobby Knuckles t-shirts are available over there at our merchandise shop. As always, we partner with our guys from Superconductor on the shop. They are a brand and design studio from Portland, Oregon. We can't recommend them highly enough for all your design needs. Hit them up at studiosuperconductor.com or on Instagram at studiosuperconductor. All right, we're going to try to get into this listener mail here, and we're going to start with... Ilya Topuria's victory over Alexander Volkanovsky over the weekend. The big news, the headline headed into this week. First piece of listener mail comes to us from our guy Toucan Ham, who writes, What does it say that the MMA gods gave their blessing to Ilya Topuria and sanctioned the slaughter of Volkanovsky? Them Conor McGregor comparisons came true, and all of a sudden, Spain is on the map. Now, Ben, the Ilya Topuria victory, I think, is important for some different reasons, not only because uh, he knocked off the the longest standing champion in the UFC, an all-time great at 145 pounds in Alexander Volkanovsky, but here you got Topuria now, the new champ, a guy who might be carrying the banner for the next generation of UFC fighters, 27 years old, 15-0 and 0 now in his professional career. Uh, you know, six fights, seven fights into his UFC career. He's the champ. And I got to say, he was impressive on Saturday night as he has been in all of his UFC appearances thus far. Uh, and one of the things that impressed me the most, not only is he an explosive striker, not only does he have that, you know, one or two punch knockout power that was fully on display against Volkanovsky, but this guy for his age and relative inexperience is super poised. He at no point looked like this, moment, the biggest moment thus far in his career overwhelmed him quite the opposite. He looked like a cool customer out there. He was confident all week, as you talked about last week a lot. And now here he is champion. And as mentioned by the two can ham here, potentially with an entire country following along with him, which historically has been one of the things that can turn a UFC fighter into a huge draw footnote C McGregor, Kana, comma, Connor, or St. Pierre, comma, George. Though that's what you look for in a big draw. And it seems, as we sit here today, maybe like Ilya Topuria checks all those boxes. Yeah, and honestly, I know people, it's like we reach for the Conor McGregor comparison thing because we're like, superstar who seems like he wants to dress nice and make himself a center of attention. And it's the... It's like we can't conceive of that being anybody other than a new Conor McGregor. Whereas Ilya Teporia's thing, it's it's definitely different than McGregor's. It's it's not quite... We've seen people show up in this sport and try to do the Conor McGregor bit. Yeah. We've seen it. People will yeah. just be like, I want to just recreate this thing and hopefully all the money will follow. And Ilya Teporia's is not that exactly. Like he his, frankly, seems genuine. Like the the confidence that borders on hubris, you'll recall... That when we talked about this before, I said it's only hubris if he loses. 
which he did not. And then, then you look like you just, you knew all along. He said, I'm going to go out there and finish this guy in the first two rounds. And he did. And afterwards, you know, we're sitting there, they're asking him about uh, different people in the weight class, all this stuff. And he's just sort of like dismissive of them, but in a way where it's like, I believe that he believes this. I, I don't think that he is doing this for the purposes of, you know, trying to be a new Conor McGregor or trying to, to generate that attention. I mean, obviously he knows that it will, but it's like, you go out there, you fight this dude who has never lost at featherweight. You sleep him with one right hand early on in the fight. You're that dude yeah. after that point, you know, yeah. like you, you did exactly what you said you were going to do. Uh, never for a second look odd by the moment or like you're in over your head. Uh, Cause one of the things that is so appealing about this sport is that if you talk a whole bunch of shit beforehand, if you pretend to be somebody you're not, you can fake your way through so many aspects of this sport. But on Saturday night, they're going to lock that cage door. Yeah. And it's just you, the other guy, and the truth all in there together. And if you are not that guy, we will find out. He proved that he is that guy. Yeah, at least for the time being, I think that that's 100% true. Obviously, any Conor McGregor call out at this point is ridiculous because Conor McGregor is never going to fight any of these guys. He's never going to fight these young hitters more than anything else. He's never going to fight at 145 pounds ever again. And yet, when Ilya Tupuria called out Conor McGregor after this event and said, let's do it in Spain... That was the first time in a long time that my brain, when I heard it, thought, hmm, like yeah. that's not going to happen. But for some reason, when Tupuria said that, it wasn't the first time that I was like, that's ridiculous. Like if somehow you could convince an aging Conor McGregor, and again, I don't want to get way ahead of ourselves here with Ilya Tupuria, but like if he does indeed have the support of Spanish mixed martial arts fans everywhere. And you could put him in a groundbreaking event in Spain against the biggest star in a fight that was sure to be fireworks. I got to say, this is the first time in a long time I've been like, that would be kind of cool. Yeah, absolutely. It would be kind of cool. And uh, it's the kind of thing that you're right, where once we go from this is just being some shit you said to it starts to take shape as a realistic possibility and we could imagine how this would happen and how it would work. You, you've bridged a, a huge divide there because yeah. you know, everybody loves to just be like, oh, I'll fight you in this famous rugby stadium in my home nation. And there'll be a hundred thousand people there screaming and yelling. And it's like, sure, man, anybody can just say this stuff. Somebody could ask Dana White about it. And he'll be like, yeah, no, we're going to look into that this year. This right after we finished looking into the Dallas Cowboys stadium show that we've been talking about for a full decade now, you know, we're just going to talk about that stuff. It's not actually going to happen, but here you could start to see it. Like I could see some of this taking shape. Yeah. A realistic possibility. All right. I'm going to put these three questions together because as you might imagine, we got a lot of emails about Volkanovsky and we got this one from the quasi bro dude who wrote, did the old man cosplay persona backfire on Alexander Volkanovsky leading up to the fight? Yeah, we will all remember the comedic timing of old man Volk, but also it came with Ilya Tupuria sending him to the old Volk's home. Ha ha ha. It seems like maybe Volk played into this simulation and now is a capsule in infamy. Okay. At least Jose Aldo didn't go out like this. Mm. Next question was from Christian Rader, who said, uh, 
And just like that, with Volkanovsky getting slept, every man in their mid-30s just experienced that scene from Saving Private Ryan where Matt Damon turns into an old man. And then this is an interesting one because our guy Danny Boy wrote in, subject line, easy money. He wrote, never take a fight this fast after a bad loss, Vegas for the win. So it seems like he probably won some money on this fight. But one of the things we had talked about last week on the Power Hour on the Patreon page was which thing that we thought could potentially negatively affect Volkanovsky more. The fact that he had turned 35 and you've got this quote unquote 35 year old curse uh, running around out there, you know, the UFC champs over the age of 35 or oh, in a million over the last several years, whatever it is, or the fact that he jumped into this fight relatively on short notice after jumping in to the rematch with, uh, Islam Mahachev on short notice and getting knocked out. And then he comes out there, he gets knocked out again by Ilya Tupuria. I said at the time, I thought it was the second thing. I thought that getting back in there on, with such a quick turnaround after that Mahachev fight was the thing that would negatively affect him more. As we sit here on Monday, do you still think that's true or does this outcome give more credence to the 35-year-old dudes can't get it done in the octagon, uh, I guess, opinion? Well, I mean, statistically, the 35 and up thing seems to be holding pretty solid. Yeah. Granted, one th- problem we always have in this sport when we start talking about statistics is sample size. That we just, because there are just fewer fights than there are football games and things of that nature, and how, you know, 20 fights can be an entire career, we don't often have big enough sample sizes to really be able to dig into statistics and have it really mean something. However, this one, you know, the numbers were pr- all on one side pretty much with the exception of Tyron Woodley getting it done a couple times as a over 35 year old fighter uh, in the weight classes, 170 and below. We should note that uh, 185 and up. It's a goddamn free for all who knows yeah. what's going on. But in the lighter weight classes, you know, people just aren't, they're not winning title fights, uh, 35 and up, especially against younger competitors. And then we get another example here. I mean, I do think that it is a significant factor that he came back so quick after that loss. Cause it's, to his own telling, he's drinking every day. They they call him up, say, "Do you want to fight Islam Mahachev again?" A couple week, you know, a couple weeks out, up a weight class. He says, "Sure, for the money." Gets in there, gets knocked out, and a pretty bad knockout too. And then, like three four months later, is right back in here to fight Ilya Taporia. That's quick, man. That is a yeah. quick turnaround, especially as we've also seen you don't shake off those knockout losses as fast the older you get. So it could very well be a combination of those things. When you're 35 and up, you you might need more time between a knockout loss and a big title fight against Ilya Teporia. Also, though, let's not discount the fact that Ilya Teporia, that boy, good. Yeah. So that also is part of it. And plus, several people pointed this out in the aftermath that Volkanovsky has shown before in some fights a habit of sort of exiting exchanges straight back with his chin sort of exposed Ilya Teporia seemed to catch him doing that here and then also seemed to catch him against the fence where, as we've seen in past fights, if Ilya Teporia can catch you with your back to the fence where you're a little bit immobilized and and he, he knows there's nowhere for you to go, he gets exponentially more dangerous at that moment. He kind of caught Volkanovsky with both of those things in one and just needed one clean shot to do it. 
Yeah. I wanted to get to this one from Zach Lemon on Patreon because I think it's interesting. He said, Volk is probably the first fighter to come into greatness while I've been an MMA fan. And with all love and respect to Topuria, it fucking sucks seeing the guy you know as the standard bearer for excellence lying unconscious in the ring. How do fans of this sport deal with watching guys age and suffer like this? Uh, this, I, th- I think, like I said, is an interesting question and obviously is part of the ebb and flow of this sport. Before we talk specifically about that, I will just say, I know we're all excited. We're hailing this new era. We like Ilya Topuria. He's a fun guy. We can't wait to see what he does as champion. We just talked about Volkanovski turning 35. It could be, you know, a while before he gets a rematch. It sounds like we're going to move on if Topuria fights one, two other guys. And if Volk is, is able to stay in title contention, he'd probably be 36 before he gets a rematch. It's once you lose that title, it's hard to get the belt back. Even fewer people that become champions end up becoming champions twice. So it's hard to, it's hard to get that belt back, but there's a little part of me that thinks we are shoveling dirt on Alex Volkanovsky's grave a little bit prematurely here. He got knocked out. He's not the champion anymore. He's 35. I'm not saying this is a he would have won if he hadn't lost type situation, but it wasn't looking terrible. No, it wasn't. He was holding his own. He was doing well. Uh, And then, you know, he got caught. If he is able to to clean up some of the things about his maybe technical approach, some of the things, some of the mistakes he made, and we know they're good at that down there at City Kickboxing, I feel like we're, you know, we're calling it quits on this guy maybe before we've seen the, the full body of work. Yeah, that's fair. We are always prone in MMA to not only shoveling dirt on people too soon, but extrapolating too much from the last thing we saw. Yeah. And forgetting all the other stuff. Like you're right that he it's not like he looked terrible. It's not like he looked old or outclassed or slow or anything in that fight prior to getting stung pretty good there and going to sleep right face down on the mat. Um but it's also like you you did see a little bit of a speed discrepancy there, which he's not used to dealing with. Like right. usually, it's the other way around. Um, you you're also dealing with a situation where I know he he made his case for a rematch by basically being like, "I've been a company man. I've I've been there for you when you needed me. Here's all I want is a rematch." The UFC a lot of times does like these immediate rematches, maybe more than the fans do. You could argue that there's not any super pressing business where we go the same way we're looking at bantamweight, which I know we'll talk about later and going, there's an obvious guy who got next. Yeah. Here, there's not really an obvious guy. I mean, you know, depending on how Max Holloway looks and his his BMF fight, you know, the there might be an iron to strike if it becomes hot in the aftermath of that one. But... I guess the counter is if they were to say Alexander Volkanovsky, okay, you get your immediate rematch with Ilya Deporia, um, and we'll do it within the next six months. Would that be good news for him? Yeah, I don't know. I honestly don't know. He might want to. He might want to take a respite. He will. I don't think he will, though. Don't you think? Like everything we've heard from him has been like, yeah. I don't like having time off away from the gym I, when I'm not in camp. I don't really know what to do with myself. I get in some bad places mentally. I mean, I, I think he's probably going to be okay just because Alexander Volkanovsky does seem like one of the smarter and more reasonable people. And as you said, the city kickboxing people seem like they do a pretty good job just in all facets of the game. But I do hope that 
he has people around him to help him through this part. Because if you already feel like you struggle between fights, you came back pretty quickly after one knockout loss, got knocked out a second time, it, you lost your title. Things could This could be a tricky time to, yeah. for Alexander Volkanovsky to come back. And you would think, like, I could see how it would be important to him to get focused, get something on the books so that he has something that he can work toward, but you also don't want to see him do it too soon, and you don't want to see him do it if he's not in the best mental place to, to do something like that. Yeah. I don't know where the city kickboxing gym is or what it looks like, but maybe there's one of those big, like, old-fashioned metal radiators in there, okay. uh, and we could handcuff Volkanovsky to that. Just that, to keep that him from taking extreme, a fight. Just I to think. keep him there until he's recovered. I don't think... You know, maybe they get down with some unconventional training methods, but I don't know. I don't know if that's a great idea, Chad. Just briefly on Zach's actual point here, because I do think it's interesting. This, you know, I don't want to say shit happens, but this happens to everyone for the most part is that, you know, they get beat. It happens to everybody. Yeah. We've seen it. We saw it happen to Anderson Silva. We saw it happen over a long period of time to Fedor Emelianenko. I remember it happening to Randy Couture, my guy early on. Uh, you I mean, know, Jesus, it happened to Randy Couture pretty goddamn late, though. So, yeah, well, eh, let's, we don't even talk about that. Uh, it happens. It's a thing you got to get used to. It's happened to everybody except for maybe George St. Pierre, who, uh, you know, had a couple of tough ones there, had the fight against Johnny Hendricks, then decided to peace out the game until he saw a real good opportunity against Mike Bisping, came back, won that one, and then immediately walked away again. Unless you have a situation like that, this happens to everybody. It's part of the life cycle of the sport. It sucks. Uh, if you are a fan of that person, every time it is, it is a little bit bittersweet. But at the same time, it's, I guess it's just a thing you have to condition. You have to guard your heart against it. You have to condition yourself for it because it's going to happen. Yeah, I would also say, and I don't want to get too poetic about it or anything or too precious. Man, but I just like, said shit happens. How are you going to be more poetic than that? <laughs> um, I would say, you know, this is part of it. This is part of what you like about it, whether you realize that or not, is that the highs are high and the lows are lows. It's the human drama. It's not just people smashing each other in the face. I mean, for some people, it probably is. For some fans, the same people who they want to watch slap fighting, they want to watch any human being hitting another human being. They don't care if there's a narrative or there is a reason for it, and they don't care to know anything about the people hitting or being hit before or after. Those fans are definitely out there. For the listeners of the CME podcast, a very thoughtful, erudite bunch, as we have established on many occasions... I, I know that one of the things that gets us into this sport is that it's the human drama of it. The human drama is so real, it's so visceral, it's so close to the surface, uh, more so than it is in other sports. It's you and another person in there both fighting over a big sack of money, and you got everything on the line and you're totally exposed. Like that, that risk, that high wire act of it is part of the appeal, and it's part of what makes that, that moment of victory so sweet you know if you're if it's your guy who lands that one big punch and sleeps the other dude and it's a holy shit moment every single time and if it's your guy on the other end of it then it's a like oh god my heart just broke and i feel sick moment every single time but like that's part of it man that is part of the like you don't have to hide from that feeling you don't have to try to like ignore it like let yourself feel that feeling that is part of the appeal of this is that it can be awful and wonderful here endeth the sermon. 
Ben, you remember at the top of the show, I mentioned the presidential election of 1800 between Mm -hmm. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Sure do. Did you remember, did you know that John Adams and Thomas Jefferson died on the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence in 1826? They died on the same day, not knowing that Thomas Jefferson had passed away. John Adams said on his deathbed, as his last words, he whispered, Jefferson lives. But Jefferson did not live. He was Hmm. already dead. How about that? That is crazy. You know what else is crazy, Chad? Uh, Operation Northwoods. You familiar with Operation Northwoods? Who isn't? Operation Northwoods, Chad, was a proposed false flag operation that originated within the U.S. Department of Defense and uh, the uh, the United States government in 1962. The proposals called for CIA operatives to both stage and commit acts of terrorism against American military and civilian targets and blame them on the Cuban government. According to the document itself later released, uh, the point of the Operation Northwoods, quote, the desired result from the execution of this plan would be to place the United States in the apparent position of suffering defensible grievances from a rash and irresponsible government of Cuba and to develop an international image of a Cuban threat to peace in the Western Hemisphere. The hope there being that that would justify attacks on Cuba. Just something I would like you to keep in mind for later in the show. Operation Northwoods. Look it up. Uh, I, I tuned that out, so I don't. I don't know if I can keep don't it worry. in mind. We're, we're going to come back around to it. One of the other topics people wanted to talk about this week, I don't know we need to spend a lot of time on it, but Mark Zuckerberg. We got this okay. one from, from Cody Bernston on Patreon. Cody Bernston, by the way, I believe, the originator of the Bobby Knuckles nickname? That's Colby or, Henches. Oh, Colby Henches. My apologies to him. It was, it was a it was a C name. I knew it was a yeah. C name. Anyway, Cody says on Patreon, good guy Volk lost this past weekend. As we all know, some might say he was juggling one too many curses from the 35 and over curse to the EA sports cover athlete curse. Yet I don't think that's why the MMA God struck. I think it's because Volk walked out with Zuck. Why use the sport for someone that would actually benefit in that moment before stepping in the cage? Why not instead use that spot to help some super rich billionaire with a fantasy of wanting to be close to the action sure juggling that many curses can cause any of us to fumble the bag possibly even volk but what's with mma fighters wanting to be friends with billionaires is there a hope of an actual meaningful friendship there or are they just hoping for a little payday because their actual profession doesn't pay much cody it's number two bud it's the second thing (laughs) i saw the the homie vince mancini had a good tweet about this. And I, I just have to paraphrase it because I don't have it in front of me. But basically he said, it's amazing in MMA how we can take these figures like Elon Musk, like Mark Zuckerberg, who perhaps rightly should be viewed in our society as causing these major ills, right? Causing these huge problems. Mark Zuckerberg could be blamed for at least partially torpe- torpedoing the industry that both you and I work in, right? Not only having a a platform in Facebook that became a hive of scum and villainy and misinformation that essentially broke American society. But in MMA, we're like, hey, man, Mark Zuckerberg, he's looking at him at ringside, man. He's walking out with Volkanovsky, looking like a kid at his first middle school dance, doesn't know what to do with his hands or his face. It's, it's hilarious. And I'd say part of the reason of that, not only, not, not only are we star fuckers in this Sport. We want to glom onto anyone who might be more famous than us, who shows their face 
at an event like this who is a fan of this sport. But a big part of it is that we all need the money. And we're yeah. hoping just a little bit of that Zuckerberg wealth trickles down. Okay, I agree with everything you said there. I'd also say that of all the rich assholes who have tried to stick themselves like barnacles to MMA for the cool factor of it, um, from Elon Musk to Donald Trump, Mark Zuckerberg honestly is maybe one of the most legit ones in terms of like a dude who actually does seem like he likes the sport. Yeah. Trains the sport. I can't disagree with that. Although are you saying that Donald Trump's not out here rolling for go-go platas three times a week? Donald Trump would cry if you, (laughs) if you, you got the double underhooks on him, he'd he'd fall over and, and collapse like a sack of pudding. But Mark Zuckerberg actually does train, actually seems like he's into it, uh, you know, wants to go out there and watch Mackenzie Dern anytime that she's in action. It's a little bit, a little bit weird that Mackenzie Dern is the person that Mark Zuckerberg and his wife love. Also, uh, we might get into this later on, but if Mark Zuckerberg is not cage side and involved in this one, does Mackenzie Dern and Amanda Lamos end up getting the fight of the night? over Robert Whitaker and Paulo Costa, I'm going to say no, because that's that's just, that's kooky talk right there to say that those two had a better fight than uh, Paulo Costa and Robert Whitaker did. But, like, the for Volkanovsky, it seems like a little bit of a thing where it's like, okay, you know, he meets Mark Zuckerberg, they do that thing, the, like, VR fighting thing together, and they get to know each other. And for Volkanovsky, I'm sure there is, like, a little bit of a, like, hey, this is a cool, different thing factor, like... Uh, this famous billionaire who everybody knows. And if he actually wants to be my friend, that must mean that I'm kind of a famous person now. And like, you want to have that guy around? Like, okay. It's still weird though. To like, imagine in any other sport, imagine the NFL, they're like, all right. And the special teams coach today, you know, (laughs) is, is like this, you know, influencer dude, whatever, who is just like friends with some of the guys on the team. Like they don't do that. If anything, if I'm one of the other coaches, I get kind of mad about this. Because if you're saying you could just drop this guy in here, he gets to wear the walkout suit, come come out to the cage with us, stand there in the corner like he knows something. You're kind of saying that the coach jobs aren't that important. Yeah. Like, whether you mean to or not, if you were being like, I could waste one on just a rich, famous dude who everybody knows just to stand there and so that, you know, you see him in my corner and he can feel cool walking out with us. You're saying that, you know, for everybody who flew home because their jiu-jitsu coaches weren't allowed or, like, what anything else, you're kind of saying, like, maybe you didn't need, think you need those guys so much, you know? Next question this week is from Cheesy P, who writes, Can we all tip our caps to the dog that is Robert Whitaker? one fight after being bullied by DDP? He redeemed himself by stepping up to Paulo Costa and fighting a clean and intelligent game plan outside of the last 10 minutes of round number one. 10 seconds. Or 10 seconds, sorry. While he, while he here is unquestionably... While he is unquestionably here to stay, does his unfortunate losses against both the next guys up make his path murky or means he has to fight Chimaev for number one contender status? Uh, Robert Whitaker, another nice guy in the sport, much like Alexander Volkanovsky, goes out there, gets this much-needed win, I guess you could say, against Paulo Costa. Uh, Unanimous decision. This is one of those fights where he controlled seemingly like 14 minutes and 45 seconds of it. And yet 
the way that we do the scoring now, Paulo Costa lands that big spinning kick at the at the end of round number one. Not inconceivable that a guy who has 15 seconds of the best action could win. Uh, but this was a pretty clear-cut victory for Rob, and nice to see him back in the winning column. I think he's an important guy for the middleweight division. He is now 5-2 uh, and two in his last seven, with the only loss being to Israel Adesanya and Drikas Duplessis. And uh, only previous loss in recent memory before that, also to Israel Adesanya. So... Yeah, I mean, he looked good in this fight. Polo Costa also looked good. Yeah, which he did. Which I, I think gives, you know, more weight to the win by Robert Whitaker. Uh, but also, like, this looked like one of the better versions of Polo Costa we've seen. And I was amazed. Polo Costa took some shots in this one, man. Like, especially toward, you know, as Robert Whitaker is, is really good at taking over a fight later. Once he's able to get a read on you in the first round, he doesn't get tired. He, he just finds more and more openings as the fight goes on and toward the you know later part of the second and throughout the third round he was drilling Paulo Costa with some really good shots and Costa is just taking them man taking them and no selling them you know like acting like the shit did not hurt him at all and meanwhile you see all types of blood coming out of Robert Whitaker's head and I still think absolutely Whitaker deserved to win that. You're right that like, you know, if you have at all a close first round and one guy comes close to being finished at the very end, if there were 15 more seconds in that round, who knows? You know, maybe Paulo Costa is able to finish that one. Um, But for Whitaker to come out of that one with such a much needed victory, but also to have taken some damage in it and shown, you know, like a little bit more, more miles on the tires for Robert Whitaker, as we've seen in some of these fights. I do think it's a tough position for him to be in where if the UFC, you know, if we do DDP and Nizihata Sanya, regardless of how it goes, Whitaker has losses to both those guys. I mean, I guess DDP staying the champion would be better for him, right? But like the suggestion that he might have to fight Hamzat Shamaya for number one contender, like, first of all, would watch. Yeah. Would watch the hell out of that fight. Um, and yeah, I, sadly, I think that given where the title is and, you know, the only couple places that it could reasonably go in the near future, it does seem like he'll probably have to win at least one more. Hey, man, I saw it floating around on Twitter that maybe the fight to make was Robert Whitaker against Sean Strickland. So if you can get him out there against Kamzat Chemaev, I'd, I'd take that. I'd take that any day of the week. I mean, we're we're saying, we're assuming that, okay, like, are you saying that you would think for Robert Whitaker, Hamza Chimaev would be a better fight? Or are you just saying you don't want to see Sean Strickland? Yeah, the second thing. Okay, all right. Uh, let's get in here to a little bit of Marab Dwalashvili and Henry Cejudo. We got this one from Scott who writes, how good did Marab Dwalashvili look last night? He had time in the fight to laugh and make faces at Mark Zuckerberg ringside, then pick up triple C like a pro wrestler, walk around carrying him and slam him down. Marab will fight either O'Malley or Cheeto for the belt next. And I think he has an excellent chance to take it from either of them. How high are you guys on the machine? I would answer this question by saying incredibly high. In fact, I think if you're the UFC, you don't want this guy anywhere near Sean O'Malley. But that's just my opinion, man. Yeah, you can't, though, keep him away anymore after this, right? Like, this is one... Do whatever you want. You're the UFC. Well, yeah, but come on. Like, for one thing, Marab does have 
an actual fan base. You saw yeah. that the crowd I'm reaction. I'm part of it Jordan. now. I'm part of it. <laughs> I mean the the Ray Longo and his guys, they've been talking about Marab for a long time. Like the first time I ever heard Marab's name, I think where I was interviewing Ray Longo for a story, maybe even about Ray and they were like you know about our guy Marab. He's going to be a champ someday. Like this dude's killer and he's amazing in the gym. And it seems like people have slowly gotten turned on to it. The more you see of this guy, especially when he's out there against Henry Cejudo, picking him up and Matt Hughes walking him over to the other side of the cage so he can throw him down in front of his buddy, Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, like he's just kind of toying with Henry Cejudo later in this fight, you know, got rocked a little bit early on, but it recovered, yeah. uh, seemed, seemed totally in control by the end. You know, you could tell looking at Henry Cejudo, he knew he'd been beaten in that fight. And, it's so clear now where it's like, okay, regardless of how that fight goes, unless there is some controversy that demands them running it back, you got to put Marab in there against the winner. And I think he is a threat to both those guys. Uh, I understand what you're saying, that if you have Sean O'Malley and you feel like, okay, he has some real Conor McGregor-type potential, we want to ride that train as long as we can. But how would you justify, if, if Sean O'Malley even you know stays a champ after fighting Chido Vera, if he goes out there, avenges that loss, beats Chido Vera, comes out of that still the champ, how would you justify being like, mm, no, we're not doing Marab. Because the UFC has already said yeah. Marab's going to get the next title fight. Plus, we said with the Sean O'Malley thing, that some of the fights that they made, when, when they put him up against Peter Yan, we were like, oh, are they giving up? Are they giving yeah. up trying to make Sean O'Malley a thing? Because they're feeding him to the Lions here. And he he won. Close fight, but he won. And he goes in there against Aljamain, and it felt like, well, okay, it's sink or swim time for Sean O'Malley. And he gets the knockout win there. I mean, seems like, especially the CME podcast, you'd think it'd be the other way since Sean O'Malley's a hell in a Montana guy. Every time he's in one of these tough fights, it seems we think he's going to lose. So maybe, yeah. maybe we should uh, check ourselves a little bit there. That's true. And sometimes it feels like the worst thing that can happen to you is that the UFC says you're guaranteed for the next title shot. But I agree with you. It'd be hard to keep him out at this point. I guess I should rephrase. Maybe maybe don't let him anywhere near Sean O'Malley is, is not exactly what I meant to say. Maybe I would Maybe I would rather say if you think Sean O'Malley is your cash cow, then it would make you very nervous to yeah. see the emergence of Marab. Although, you know, as you said, he got rocked early by Henry Cejudo and maybe O'Malley could do the same thing. Probably has more knockout power than Cejudo. So so who knows how that fight would go? It's just it's hard not to like Marab at this point uh, with the the cardio, the pace, the wrestling, the kind of uh, devil may care attitude. And you pile on top of that, the personality. And I feel like he's a uh, he's a great figure right now. And uh, we got to we got a, uh, an email from David Lauderay that I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he said at the end, is there any UFC fighter currently sparking more joy than big Marab D? And I'd say maybe not. Like he's, he's really a, a, a fun figure right now in this sport. He's, he's hilarious on social media. He brings a lot of enthusiasm. Maybe you need to cut the mic at some point when he's standing there, <laughs> uh, just going on and on about everything and, and everything in his post fight interview. But yeah, glad to have him at this point when sometimes in this sport, we need all the fun stories that we can get. So I'm glad to have Marab here. And I have made a solemn vow to find out absolutely nothing else about him. Yeah. Also, I will say, I absolutely love a fighter with an extremely fucked up nose. Like, Oh yeah. I yeah. love when you're going to show up looking like you have never learned an easy lesson in your entire life. You know, like that's where it's like, okay, 
that's a guy, you you meet him on the subway, you ask him what he does, he says, I'm a professional cage fighter, you look at his face and you go, yeah, you are. Absolutely you are. 100%. Also, cool hat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, next question this week comes from Sean Simpson, who writes, UFC 300 main event, LOL, bro. Even Dana White looked pissed in the thumbnail for his own announcement video. I didn't <laughs> even have the sound on when I played it, but his body language said, quote, I know I'm going to get shit for this, unquote. Oh, well, my enthusiasm for this sport continues to decline, but at least I still have your podcast. Love you both equally. Obviously, they announce... Uh, the UFC 300 main event after UFC 298, which was one of the things that they promised to do. And they uh, they went through with it, even though I thought it was at the end of the day, a little bit of weird timing to have Dana White put out that video immediately in the wake of UFC 298 when we had so many other things to talk about. But the main event at UFC 300 is going to be Jamal Hill and your guy Alex Pereira for the light heavyweight title. And it's, as I said on on Twitter yesterday. This is a fun card. UFC 300, if you yeah. look at, at the extent of the pay-per-view card, is a fun card. Uh, Pereira versus Jamal Hill is a fun fight. It's going to be a banger. Someone's probably going to get knocked out. If that were the main event of any any other pay-per-view, it would be fine. Absolutely nothing wrong with the 300 card. In fact, 298, 299, and 300 in a row will put the UFC on a nice little heater. feel like they've got some good pay-per-views lined up. And they have no one to blame but themselves for their reaction to UFC 300 yes. because they stoked the fire. Dana White personally stoked the fire telling us that this event was going to blow the tops of our heads clean off. And then you get to it and you're just like pretty fun, but otherwise pedestrian UFC pay-per-view. Well, yeah. Also, I think worth noting is that for a while there, Dana White was talking about the UFC 300 main event as if they already had it. And yeah. we're just waiting to tell us what it was. And boy, were we going to be blown away when we found out what it was. And then in the days and weeks that followed, in part because we heard some other fighters talking about how they had declined the UFC 300 main event spot, we learned, oh, when he said that, he didn't know what the main event was going to be. He's just going to say it's going to be awesome. And then whatever they end up getting He's going to tell you that that was the awesome thing he was referring to. Because we heard Tom Aspinall say that he had been asked to fight Stipe Miocic. He didn't specifically say that that was going to be the main event, but you'd have to think. We saw John Jones was saying that he had been offered the UFC 300 main event, said that he couldn't do it because it's too soon after coming back from injury. So clearly the UFC was kind of in scramble mode trying to figure this out. Jamal Hill, you see his uh, interview with Aaron Bronstetter after this announcement where Aaron was asking him, like, how, when did this come together? And he was like, yesterday. I agreed with yesterday. Like, it all just came together very quickly. And so, when we not only see you trying to book these different fights, but we hear that you're essentially, you know, in almost in panic mode, trying to figure out what the 300 main event is going to be. It's less than two months away now. All of that creates, like, an image that this was a consolation prize, essentially. You, you were trying for other stuff. You were trying for bigger stuff. You couldn't make it happen. And so you settled for Jamal Hill and Alex Pereira, which it's a fine fight. It's a fine, it's a title fight that makes sense because Jamal Hill won the vacant title and had to give it up when he hurt his Achilles playing pickup basketball of all damn things. Alex Pereira then won the vacant title. It makes sense to have those guys fight right away to determine what the hell is actually going on at light heavyweight. And if that headlined any other UFC pay-per-view, we'd be like, sure, 
That makes absolute sense as a UFC pay-per-view headliner. But after you built up UFC 300 so big, and then we see you scrambling around trying to figure out what the main event's going to be, unless it's something absolutely huge, it's going to look like this was a backup plan, and we finally just said, good enough, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, Ben, we're almost 50 minutes into the show. Uh-oh. You know what time it is. Is it Tracy time? It's Tracy time. This message from Tracy Dickinson. She writes, Dana White says for UFC 300, Leon Edwards was offered three different <coughs> opponents and said yes to all of them, but nothing came <coughs> through. I'm curiously, I'm curious what was actually offered because there's no doubt in my mind that Bilal would have said yes, regardless of Ramadan. Is he, meaning Dana White, just saying stuff now, or is there a reason why they wouldn't have treated this as the co-main of the card? As well, the main event is great for any other card. It's slightly underwhelming for the main of UFC 300, so another title fight would have helped. I noticed this too, and I thought it was a weird thing to say. Yeah. Because, you know, Bilal Muhammad has been after that title shot for a while. I agree with Tracy, even though... UFC 300 is going to go down in the middle of Ramadan. I feel like Bilal would have taken it if that was his chance. He's out there in the crowd at 290, uh, 298 making the call me gesture mm-hmm. when they show him in the, in the crowd. And so if not Bilal, who are the three guys that they offered Leon Edwards? One of them you'd think is, is Hamza Chmaev. But other than that, I have no idea who else they would have offered him. Yeah, I mean, especially because Bilal Muhammad, right after this, was he was out there on Twitter letting you know. Uh, he he said he tweeted right after this, "I'd fight Leon next week. I'm always ready." He he's he has been very vocal. Like if you follow Bilal Muhammad on Twitter, he posts about two things: one, uh, the ongoing horrible situation in Gaza; yep. two, how he believes that he has already earned the welterweight title shot and is ready to do it at the drop of a hat. And so, yeah, if you had at some point on your radar Leon Edwards defending the title as a possible UFC 300 main event, if you started there with Leon Edwards versus TBD, I don't see how you get to three names deep on the list of a possible opponents and Bilal Muhammad ain't even one of them. Yeah. You know, like I could see how you'd be if you'd say, hey, Hamza Jemayev, like that one feels like a bigger one because it's let's be honest, like even though Bilal Muhammad might have done more to earn it. If you put those two announcements side by side, Leon Edwards versus Bilal Muhammad for UFC 300 main event or Leon Edwards versus Hamza Jemayev for UFC 300 main event and which would do a bigger fan response. It's Jemayev. Like, yeah, I, I, I don't love admitting that, but that is absolutely true. And so. If Chimaev says no, I would think Bilal Muhammad would be number two on the list. Because who the hell else gonna, is it going to be? And to say that you got to two more names after that and still didn't call Bilal Muhammad, that don't make no sense to me. Yeah, if you're Bilal Muhammad, that's a bad sign, man. Yeah, it's a and, really bad sign. And, you know, uh, despite the fact that we all know that maybe not all of the things that come out of Dana White's mouth are the truth... And that we have learned the hard way in this sport to to take what he says with a grain of salt. At the same time, this doesn't seem like something he would lie about because yeah. he's going to stand up there and essentially say this as a as a matter of praise to Leon Edwards, which is the thing. He doesn't have to say that under those circumstances. He doesn't have to go down that road at all. And so this seems like something at least to me, that has the ring of truth from him, which is is odd. uh, According to uh, Ariel, I believe this is uh, Ariel 
discussing this today on the MMA Hour, that he says that the three opponents that were discussed and that were offered to Leon Edwards were Hamza Jumayev, Shavkat Rachmanov, that boy good, and okay. Islam Mahachev. Okay. I guess that makes sense. I don't know what weight you'd have the Mahachev fight at. I guess 170, he'd move yeah. up. Okay. I mean, Islam Mahachev is, is joined, has joined the long list of champions who became champions and without ever defending it against a guy uh, in their own weight class immediately started talking about getting a second UFC belt. So, yeah. I mean... That does seem like you went okay. Hamza Jumayev, he's kind of a, a name. He, we could we could do numbers with that. N- no, he says no. Shavkat Rachmanov, that boy, good. It seemed like you know he's headed for a title shot. Uh, he says no, and then you start thinking super fight. If I'm Bilal Muhammad, I'm going what the hell, man? Like yeah. this is this shit ever going to happen for me? What do I need to do? Ben, did you know that Grover Cleveland would personally answer the phone at the White House? Of course I knew that. So if you called up during the Cleveland administration, you might you might just get to talk to Grover himself. He just might pick up the phone. And what would you say, do you think? I'd uh, tell him about my concerns over cattle futures in the Midwest. So that's why I was calling the White House. I just, t- I'd, you know, I'd speak to whatever issue I wanted to talk to the president about. Grover, Can't I do that concerns. today. Can't do that today. Can't call up the White House and uh, ask to talk to Joe. Have you tried? In fairness, have you tried? You know, I I had called the White House when I was a kid. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Ronald Reagan days? George Bush days? Yeah, yeah. Reagan Bush. Just wanted to see what would happen. Call the White House to get the White House switchboard. They won't let you talk to the president if you ask. Really, a child can't call up and talk to the president? That's, that's surprising Just FYI. To uh, you know what else is interesting? You remember what I said about Operation Northwoods? I do. Yeah, I have a vague a recollection false flag of flag operation to blame Cuba. Um, on August 9th, 1963, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald showed up in downtown New Orleans handing out pro-Castro leaflets. And he had approached anti-Castro militant Carlos Bringior uh, about working with him. Bringior later said that he assumed and suspected Oswald was trying to infiltrate his group. Uh, because Oswald, as a former Marine who had defected to the Soviet Union and then been let right back in, seemed to him like probably an intelligence agency plant. But uh, Oswald is down there in downtown New Orleans handing out these pro-Castro leaflets. A scuffle ensues. Oswald is arrested. Prior to leaving the police station, he requested to speak with an FBI agent, which is a strange move. He told the agent that he was a member of the New Orleans branch of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, which he claimed had 35 members and was led by A.J. Hedell. In fact, Oswald was the branch's only member. It had never been chartered by the national organization. And A.J. Hedell was the name he told his wife, Marina, to sign as chapter president on the membership card thereby establishing fake pro-communist bona fides mere months before the assassination of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Next question this week comes from assassinated President William McKinley. Nice. Shot nice. while shaking hands in a, in a rope line in Buffalo with a pistol by disgruntled anarchist Leon Shulgosh. So... Listen to a podcast about that one, folks. He writes, I'd like to open by passing along a quote to Mackenzie Dern. Lesson not just karate only. Lesson for whole life. Whole life have balance. Everything be better. Mr. Miyagi. Mackenzie is just 30. Her time in the UFC 
she became a big draw, won some and lost some and gone through all kinds of gym training and personal turmoil. I don't want to sell my stock yet. She's a plus athlete, world-class on the ground and tougher than the back wall at the gun range, but she needs balance in her striking, in her training and in her personal life. I guess I can't disagree, right? Yeah. There were moments in this fight, especially early on, where you go, oh, right there. Mackenzie Dern can do this. Like, here's what Mackenzie Dern can do. She she had a great takedown early in this fight where she times the level change just right, drops under the punch, puts a Mandalay motion down, and you're going, okay, get to work now. Here's where Mackenzie Dern ought to be able to finish some of these fights. And... You know, then she gets rocked, seems like she doesn't quite recover exactly, and later in the fight, it seems like you could kind of see her accepting that she's probably not going to win this one. And, like, I agree with the late, great William McKinley on this one, that you see some of these moments, and you go like, okay, the stuff is there, some of the stuff you need is there, and it's just not all coming together, or it's not coming together at the right times, because... We talked about, I think, before this one that you kind of don't know what you're getting with Mackenzie Dern from one fight to the next. Like this one, you know, had moments where she looked genuinely good. The last one looked like she was going backwards in development. And yeah, granted, like when you have a lot of turmoil in your personal life and especially in ways that are going to affect your training, that's got to be tough. Uh, And she seemed to like be putting the most positive possible spin she could on it either for public consumption or maybe just telling herself like that she's thriving in the chaos, all that kind of stuff. Cause you know, if you're dealing with that anyway, you might as well tell yourself that you're going to do well despite it or even because of it. But like, it does seem like you're getting to a point where we've been waiting for Mackenzie Dern to put it all together. How long do you wait before you'd be like, I don't know if it's going to happen. I mean, Credit to her, she, like we saw in the disclosed payouts that she was, uh, at least according to the information released by the California State Athletic Commission, she's showing up, she's making 200 grand to show. Yeah. Then they give her the 50 grand fight of the night bonus, which again, absolutely robbing Robert Whitaker and Paulo Costa of their well-deserved fight of the night bonus. I gotta think that Zuckerberg's sitting there being like, ah, big Mackenzie Dern fan number one, that might have had something to do with it. But like, she's doing well for a UFC fighter financially, all that stuff looks like they expected her to be a big thing. And yet it's just not quite happening. Yeah. I mean, if Mark Zuckerberg wanted Dern and Lemos to be the fight of the night, he could have just opened up his wallet, pulled out a hundred thousand dollars in cash and split it up between the two of them. Like that's, could have been the personal Mark Zuckerberg. Well, and damn bonus. it, he ought to be. If I find out that Mark Zuckerberg is never just giving people money, like if he's hanging around MMA and being buddy buddy with the fighters and never once gives anybody money, I'm gonna be so pissed. Yeah, well, he, he at least better be handing out Rolexes or cars or some <laughs> shit like that. Like, don't tell me we're letting this nerd stick himself like a barnacle to MMA and do it for free. He ought to, I mean, if he shows up to train with Alexander Volkanovsky or whatever, he ought to be like, oh, uh, let me get my stuff out of my gym bag. Here's my shin guards. Here's my mouthpiece. Here's $200,000 cash. Come on. Never miss it. Well, I mean, Marab did say he did refer to Mark Zuckerberg as quote unquote, his supporter over the last several months. So I hope what he meant was patron. I hope that Marab is sort of like a Renaissance artist you know, living in the palace of the <laughs> yeah. king or whatever. Uh-huh. So hopefully that's true. Uh, on the topic of Mackenzie Dern, I agree with you. I agree with the 
with the point of the question also, she's only 30. She obviously has world-class ground skills. She's still got a ton of potential. The thing that worries me is that she has been in the UFC for almost exactly six years. She started seven and one and has since gone two and four. Now, obviously that is over an increasing level of competition, but it's still, like you said, you're moving backwards in terms of wins and losses, if nothing else. She has been a professional fighter since the summer of 2016. So, you know, that ain't that ain't nothing. Yeah. If you're Mackenzie Dern, I don't know what she's doing if she has an outside job, but you just mentioned she's making pretty good money for a person at her level in the UFC. If you have had the last six years as a UFC fighter to close up the holes in your game, I mean, we just haven't really seen it, right? Yeah. If anything, it seems like she has late career Matt Hughes disease where you learned a couple of striking techniques and now you're out there throwing hillbilly haymakers instead of trying to get the fight to the ground at all costs, which is worrying. Obviously, she needs to have good striking if she's going to compete in this sport. But for Mackenzie Dern, priority number one always needs to be put this fight on the mat Yeah, where you are a threat to finish it at any time against anyone. And so... The fact that she seems to be a little scattered, a little bit uh, nonsensical, even sometimes in her in her uh, game planning six years in. And again, I know she's changed camps. She's had that turmoil, everything else. But it's just it's 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 troubling if you are a Mackenzie Dern person who wants her to do well. Yeah. Next question this week comes to us from Just Bleed Jesse White Deer, who says, with one of only two finishes on the main card from Saturday night, does Anthony Fluffy Hernandez reach big homie status, or dare I ask, capital G status? Anthony Hernandez is a guy who is easy to forget about, for whatever reason, I think, and yet, here he is, one, two, three, four, five straight wins in a row in the UFC, beat Roman Kopliov over the weekend, beat Edmund Shabazian before that, feel like yeah, we legitimately should be talking about Anthony Hernandez more. Yeah, and it, I think it says something that uh, the UFC put him and Kopliov in this opener, the, the pay-per-view opener here, which means like that they saw them as guys we want to get a little bit more attention on. We want to give them that attention of putting them on the main card of a pay-per-view. We also think that this is probably an exciting fight that maybe doesn't go the distance. And that's yeah. why you put it there first. And and it proves to be exactly that. Um, and, I mean, just watching Anthony Hernandez as a guy where he, as soon as he gets on your back, he's not going anywhere. And he's going to just keep changing up the approach to getting that choke until he finally gets it. Uh, like, that's a guy who knows that that's his shit right there. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see what kind of matchup they come up with him for next. Anthony Hernandez smiling and nodding like a mm -hmm. like a maniac, like a demon, like someone you'd see in a nightmare as he chokes out Roman Kopliov is for me enough to make him at least a potential capital G guy in my stable of favorites. So he'll be on my radar a little bit more, I think, moving forward. We got this question from Cody McKenzie's Walmart starter basketball shorts who writes, so Junior Taffa filled in for his injured brother on one day's notice and got his calf kicked to pieces. All he got was 23000 My question is, do you think they made him wear his brother's shorts or did he actually get his own late notice shorts like when a debutante fills in? Uh, tough night at the office for Junior Taffa, who, as you mentioned as we were watching it, is one of those guys on your job who's like, I'm not even supposed to be working tonight. Yeah. So I got to <laughs> deal with this shit. 
What I wasn't even on the schedule. You know, yeah. they called they called me in. Damn, man. You know, and then it's like you, he there was a, definitely a moment where he's laying on his back in this fight and the look on his face was like I don't know if this was the best idea, you know. <laughs> Starting like, to seem a lot less worth it with every kick. Yeah, especially cuz it's like to go in there and I guess you got to be telling yourself like, "Hey, you know, I'm I'm in, I stay in decent shape." You know, I land one big shot. Who knows? And then the guy just starts kicking your leg to shreds. And you're like, fuck. I was not. This was not what I was hoping for. You know, I'm not feeling exactly ready for this. Uh, and now you thought you were going to go corner your brother. And then you're, now you're going to spend the next couple of weeks limping around the house. Uh, that That's rough, man. That is rough. And I guess the good thing is the UFC will... Th- supposedly hopefully think of you as a guy who helped them out did them a solid you made some money all that kind of stuff uh you know you're not going to get that uh, show money sitting on the couch or even cornering your brother but it also just seems like okay you didn't put yourself really in a great position for success there like you you get the attaboy for stepping up uh you also get beat take some damage to the leg whatever you thought was coming up for you soon now gonna have to wait a little while um yeah, that's that, that's a rough way to. He didn't show up in Anaheim thinking that was how it was going to go. Next question this week comes to us from Zach Sinkinson, Sinkinson, who writes: Is this the first time in the modern UFC era that you have every single champion with two or less title defenses? Then he lists them all. Uh, this should be the time to let champions defend and defend a lot, not be going up and down weight classes as UFC needs new stars and they get that by running through divisions not one fight let me know your thoughts this is a thing that struck me Sunday morning after watching UFC 298 is that as we said earlier the longest reigning UFC champion at this point is Leon Edwards who won his title in August of 2022 so you've had potentially an unprecedented amount of churn and turmoil at the top this doesn't even count you know that doesn't even count different champions crowned which was like 13 or something over the last year or something like that because there's been so much sea change at the top silly little guys will try to tell you that the longest reigning ufc champion is still john jones uh but that's not how it works that's not how it works and john jones if anything has been most notable by his inactivity over the last handful of years. But I can't recall this. I can't recall a time when there's been this much flux among UFC champions. Uh, And honestly, as I sit here today, I couldn't tell you if it's good or bad. I couldn't tell you if it's a weakness or a strength. I know that traditionally in combat sports, audiences like dominant champions. To a point. At the same time, I feel like some of the the change, some of the coming and going is, is fun. I think people like dominant champions until it starts to feel like they've cleaned out the division. And then, and we get into reruns or whatever. And I think then people get bored with it. This interesting about this list provided by Zach Sinkinison. Uh, he lists the only people with two. Well, he does. He lists Leon Edwards as having one, but Leon Edwards has two, right? Because he he yeah. turned around and rematched Kamaru Usman, so that was a title defense. And then he beat Colby Covington, uh, so that's two title defenses. And then Islam Mahachev has two. However, they were both against. Alexander Volkanovsky, a featherweight. So, like, he has zero defenses against actual lightweights. Not really his fault. I mean, we're trying to put him in there with lightweight. Uh, but, yeah, when you look around there, you like, 
the one way to look at it is we're getting a lot of fresh blood. You you do create an impression that every time the title goes up for grabs, anything could happen. You know, the hard part about it is that in an age where it's very much just some fights, people might tune in, tune out. It makes it a lower chance that somebody is going to be able, like if you could ask somebody right now, who is the women's bantamweight champion? Who is the men's middleweight champion? You know, like the odds that they will know who the champion is at that moment go way down just because the belts have been moving around all over the place. All right, we're going to finish up with this one from Daniel Rodriguez, who writes, Roy Vall and Moreno will face each other in what for some people may be a fight for the number one contender spot. Both have lost their last fight against the current champion, Pantoja, while also being a combined 0-5 against him. Is this really a fight to be the next number one contender? If not, who should be the next for Pantoja? Also, in honor of the UFC returning to Mexico, can I get a Viva Mexico Cabrones? Love you both equally, but that may change depending on if one of you scream Viva Mexico Cabrones (laughs) with more gusto. It does seem like what we're doing over there at Flyweight is kind of having the same three guys fight each other over and over again. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, This is this Saturday's fight night. Yeah. It's going to be down there at, at Arena CDMX in Mexico City, and it's a good card. For if you want to watch a fight night, Brandon Moreno and Brandon Royval, as we mentioned, is the flyweight main event. Yair Rodriguez and Brian Ortega is the co-main. So that's a good fight to have on a fight night. You also yeah. got Raul Rosas Jr. on the card. So that's that's a guy you should tune in for. I mean, this is this is one of the better fight night cards we've seen in a while. I guess that makes sense since you're not at the apex. You're going down to Mexico City. And so that's exciting. All that is exciting. This is one you definitely want to mark your calendar for if you're around on Saturday. Uh, but also more more proof that if the UFC wanted to, they could be out and about for these fight nights. So we don't always have to be at the apex fighting in a warehouse in front of six dudes and lazy boys. Well, yeah, and especially imagine how this one is going to feel so much more exciting and electric in front of a big crowd in Mexico City than it would, you know, where it's just like family and friends gathered around in a warehouse to watch a couple dudes fight like huge difference between those things in terms in terms of like how they feel like what the magnitude of the event feels it also seems like as you mentioned this is a good card and it seems like we're kind of now adding another tier or we have already added a different tier to the ufc hierarchy of events we have like pay-per-view events at the very top and we used to say then you had the just some fights ufc fight night stuff but now you have the UFC fight nights where we think they're good enough to take them out on the road, fill up an arena with them, get people excited about them, especially in like new places like getting out of Las Vegas and, and going to places that haven't seen a UFC event in a while. And then the bottom tier is UFC fight nights in the apex. And so if they call you up and they're like, do you want to fight on this UFC fight night event? I'm sure fighters are already in the mode of being like, what kind of UFC fight night event is it? And if they say it's not the apex, that means they think you ain't shit, bro. They think you ain't shit. Well, I mean, that's a that's a negative way to say it. That's, Am I wrong? Am I wrong? I can't tell you you're wrong. I can't tell you you're wrong. Uh, on the topic of whether or not this is a number one contender fight, Brandon Moreno and uh, Brandon Royval come in off losses, as noted. Uh, Moreno is three and two in his last five. All of those were title fights. Roy Vall also comes in 
well, he's three and three in his last six and just lost, obviously, to Pantoja at UFC 296. I mean, if this is a flyweight number one contender fight, I guess that's understandable just in terms of name brand recognition, but your boy Amir Albazi might be hanging around uh, thinking, what about me? I know he he withdrew with an injury from this fight, but, you know, guy's undefeated in the UFC. You'd think uh, he'd still be on that list, even if, even if he can't go at the moment. And obviously sometimes all bookings in the UFC come down to who's around, but uh, if you're Albazi, you might... If anyone has any objections or forever hold their peace, you might want to stand up and say, "What? hey, what about me? Yeah. All right, that's going to do it this week for the Co-Main Event Podcast. Reminder, we are over on Patreon all week. Head over there, patreon.com slash co-main event, and check us out. Join the team. Uh, For the rest of you, we will talk to you next week. Thanks so much for listening. We enjoy the support. We appreciate the support. And if anything to remember over the last week, Please remember that Rutherford B. Hayes banished liquor and wine from the White House to set a good good example for the country. Because of this ban, his wife was known as Lemonade Lucy. Thanks to legendsofamerica.com for the presidential trivia this year on the Co-Main Event Podcast's Gala President's Day episode. As for right now, we are done. We are through. We are out. Chad, you ever heard of James Jesus Angleton? Uh, I've heard of James K. Polk, who fulfilled his campaign promises during the administration. Polk acquired California from Mexico, settled the Oregon dispute, lowered tariffs, and established a sub-treasury, and then retired after one term. I believe he was the last president from the Whig Party, if I'm not mistaken. That is interesting. Uh, James Jesus Angleton was a counterintelligence chief and played a major role in the formation of the CIA and a later declassified CIA memo between James Jesus Angleton and former CIA director Richard Helms established that Howard Hunt was, in fact, in Dallas uh, on that day in 1963 and that they should create a cover story for him and keep it secret. So they established a story in which he was having dinner in Washington, D.C. with his wife. People later went to ask his wife to see if that alibi could be confirmed, but it could not, Chad. You know why? She died in a plane crash. Yeah, I saw that on the HBO show. Yep. So I remember I remember that one. Uh, did you know Harry S. Truman used to get up at 5 a.m. to practice the piano for two hours? Yeah. Yeah, sure, I knew that. Millard Fillmore refused an honorary degree from Oxford University because he felt he had, quote, neither literary nor scientific attainment. That's a man with honor right there. William Henry Harrison served the shortest presidency, dying just 32 days after he was elected. You've definitely used that one before. <laughs>